You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, how are we doing? You can take a seat, grab your Bible, and turn to Psalms 42. Psalm 42. And as you're doing that, I'm going to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Zach Cunningham, and I am the associate college pastor here at Overflow Denton. And if you don't know me, uh, you're about to. I'm about to tell you about the best week of my life. Uh, and two weeks ago, me and 153 of my closest friends uh, traveled to Panama City Beach uh, on a trip called Beach Reach. Uh, who went to Beach Reach? Raise your hand. Mm. It truly was one of the best weeks of my life. Um, to see God move in the hearts of the spring breakers down there, even when they were drunk or plastered or bloody, uh, and to see God work in the hearts of you guys as you guys are down there wanting to spread the gospel to those people. Uh, it truly was incredible. Uh, I knew when I got back from Beach Reach I was going to have to teach, uh, and honestly I had no idea what I was going to teach on, uh, and that was terrifying. Um, but while I was there, I noticed two things uh, at Beach Reach. Uh, one, and some of you guys can attest to this, um, the people we were talking to, these spring breakers, uh, were hungry for truth. They, they wanted truth, and they desired truth. Uh, and I knew this because what was supposed to be a two-minute van ride from La Vela to shores of Panama, every time turned into a 45-minute conversation outside of Waffle House. Um, they, they were talking about truth, and they wanted truth. And so that was one observation. Spring breakers want truth. And the second observation I made, uh, and it was great, was you guys are hungry um, to take that truth, uh, the gospel, to those lost souls. I have never been a part of, in the four years I've been in Denton, of that large of a group who wanted to take the gospel to those lost souls, who had a passion for it, who, when they got back, used every single night of the week to tell people about the gospel, who told their waitresses about the gospel, and, and who used their due weeks to tell people about the gospel. And so those two observations, they're, one, they're hungry for truth, and you guys are hungry to take the gospel to those lost souls. And, and so I'm going to use all my energy, all my effort, and all my time tonight to get behind those two things, behind truth and behind the gospel. And this is what I want. I want you guys uh, to want God. I want to spend all my time tonight to convince you to want God, the God that's behind truth and the God that's behind the gospel, to want God. Look down at Psalms 42, verse 1. It says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This, that is what I want. I want your soul, your very soul, to thirst for God, to have a desire for who God is. I want you to be able to say, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And that's what I'm going to do tonight. And, and the reason why I want to do this, and you notice the author of the psalm, he's not going to church because he's obligated to. He's not reading the Bible because he's obligated to. He's not going through the motions. This dude's soul, his soul thirsts for God. And the reason why I want to even put a sermon together for this is because so many times in my life, I, I don't have a desire for God. I wake up and I don't want to go to church. I don't want to get in the word. I don't want to go to my small group. I just don't have that desire. And I know that there's some people in here tonight who, who know what I'm talking about. 
And so if, 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 you've, if you've never tasted that, that grace, that gospel, that grace that's a river, if you've never tasted it, or if you're not drinking it from it right now, my goal tonight is that you would at least thirst for it. That I'm going to walk you down this glorious mountain to this stream, and I'm going to implore you to take a drink because it's the only thing that can satisfy. And so that's my task tonight, um, that every single one of you would want God, the one true living God, um, and it's an ambitious task, uh, and it's going to take some focus from us tonight, um, but I promise you, at the end of this, there's going to be a fountain, there's going to be a stream, and it's going to be worth it. Um, so let's begin. I'm going to very quickly, I say very quickly, it's going to take like half my sermon, uh, to lay a foundation for my sermon. I'm going to try to lay some foundation, um, so stay with me. You've got to focus, but I promise at the end we're going to chew on some real meat, okay? We're going to chew on some real meat, so let's start. Um, I want you to want God, and if you're going to want something, you have to at least know what that something is, all right? If, if you want something, you have to know what that something is. For example, if I want to go to the beach, I know what the beach is. I can't want to go to the beach if I've never been to the beach or I've never heard of the beach, um, and so someone has got to tell me a little bit about the beach. I've got to know what it is, right? Somebody's got to tell me about the beauty of it, the sand, the hot sun on my skin, the water, right? And the more I, I think of the, the beach as beautiful, the more I can want to go there, right? The more you know the beach, the more you can go, right? So if you're going to want to want God, if you want God, you know who God is, right? In order to want God, you've got to know who God is. Are you following with me? Um, and so to want God, you've got to know God. And the truth is, at some point in your life, if you are a Christian... You have tasted God, right? You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? If you're a Christian and you're saved by Jesus, you have at one point in your life tasted God's uh, grace. You know God's grace. You know his mercy. You know his love. And you know that, his, by, that through Jesus' sacrifice, you are saved. That much you know. That's the basis for your, your salvation, right? So you know at least a little bit, a little bit about God, right, to that extent. Um, take your Bibles uh, to Romans 1. We're talking about knowing God, uh, because if, if I want you to want God, you've got to at least know who God is. And, and if you're a Christian, you know a little bit about God. And Romans 1, we're going to be in verse 18. Romans 1, 18 says this. We're talking about knowing God, and it says in 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, 19, look. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, look, not only do you know God if you're a Christian, but what Paul says here is that everyone, in a sense, has a knowledge of God, right? He, it says it right there. It says even, like, what has been, uh, it's, it's clearly seen through nature. Through creation, everyone knows that there's truth, right? Go back to those spring breakers. They, knew, they know there's truth. They know that there is truth in this world, but they suppress the truth, that that truth comes from God. And so the Bible says, and what Paul says is that everyone in the world knows that there is God. However, not everybody wants God. Okay? Everybody knows, in a sense, that there is a God, but, 
But not everybody wants God. And so where does that desire come from? Where does that want come from? Because if, if everybody knows God, but not everybody wants him, that's got to come from something. And, and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2. And, and this speaks very clearly to it. And, and there's a lot of passages about this. And there's a whole sermon I could preach on this. Um, but I'm not going to preach that sermon. I'm going to preach this sermon. Um, Ephesians 2, 4, it says this. We're talking about everybody knows God, but not everybody wants God. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so listen, everybody knows God, but not everybody wants God, and that want comes from God, okay? It says, God made us alive in Christ. You have been made alive to want. You've been made alive to know God fuller, right? God, remember, there's nothing you can contribute to your sin or to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God chased you. You were an enemy of God, and God saved you while you hated him, okay? We're going to move on, um, but let's see if you're still with me here. The goal for tonight is that you would want God, that you would want God, and oh, how I would want my friends and my peers to want God, for their soul to thirst for it. That's the goal. And if you're going to want something, you must know what that something is. And so if you're going to want God, you've at least got to know God. And by God's grace, you know God. So when I say I want you to want God, above that is I want you to know God. So what does it mean to know someone? What does it mean to know somebody? When I say I, I know, to, to know somebody is to know what they like, to know what they dislike, to know their passions, and to know what their pleasures are. So when I say I know someone, it means I know what they like, dislike, their passions, and their pleasures. For instance, there's not one person on this earth I know more than my twin brother, Cole. And, and when I say that, it means there's not one person on this earth who I know, I know uh, Cole's likes more than anybody, his dislikes, his passions, and his pleasures. And here's why. I've shared a room with him for 22 years. And when you, sh- when you, sh- and for <coughs> excuse me, when you share a bed with somebody for that long, you get to know him really well. Okay, and but what, what I mean is I know what Cole likes. I know, and, and I know Cole, and what I mean by this, I know uh, that Cole doesn't like my mom's spaghetti. Sorry, mom. I know that Cole's passions are for Jesus and for running, and I know that Cole likes basketball. Uh, and Cole likes basketball, and if you've been around me enough, you've heard the story that Cole likes basketball, and I know Cole likes basketball, and I know Cole likes winning basketball games. And Cole knows I like winning basketball games, too. And we know that Cole shoots free throws better than I do. We also know that we can get away with Cole shooting my free throws for me in a high school basketball game. And so that's what we did. But the point is, listen, listen, listen. The, the point is, and this is true, uh, we, 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 I know Cole likes to win. He knows I like to win. And when he looks at me in a certain way, I know to get behind the three-point line and let him shoot, right? Now, the point is to know someone... If you know someone, you know what they like and what they dislike, their passions and their pleasures. Think about this. Uh, think about somebody you know. So it might be somebody sitting next to you. It might be your boyfriend and girlfriend. But when I say, uh, what do you know about that person, immediately you're going to say, well, he likes this and he doesn't like this, right? How do you know that person? Well, he likes sports and he likes chicken. Or how do you know her? She likes 
um, the outdoors and hiking, but she doesn't like her sister. Immediately when I say, listen, immediately when I say, what do you know about that person? You're going to start listing these things that they like, dislike, what their passions are, what they find pleasure in. Um, For example, I've been dating Jordan for a year, six months, and eight days. And I like to think that over that year, six months, and eight days, I, I know a little bit about her. And when I say that, it means I know that she... Uh, likes mustard and jalapenos in her popcorn, uh, and I know that she's passionate for her cat. Those are things I know. I know about her, and that's how I know her because I know, listen, I know what she likes and dislikes her passions and pleasures. The point is, if you know someone, you know what they like, dislike, and their passions and their pleasures. And here's the point. I want you to want God. I want you to want him and your soul to thirst for him, and that means I want you to know God. And if you know God, just like you know someone, you're going to know what God's passions are, what God delights in, what he likes and dislikes. And that's what, that's what we're going to tackle tonight. The foundation is laid and it's time to build something. We're going to tackle the question, uh, what pleases God? If you're taking notes, I want you to write that big because we're going to hammer that question so hard. What pleases God? Or to rephrase that, what is God passionate for? Or... What does God delight in? What pleases God? What are God's passions? What does God delight in? The Bible is very clear that God uh, does delight in things. God can delight. God has passions. There are things that God likes, and there are things that God doesn't like. And and there's a lot of things that God delights in uh, in this Bible. However, what I'm getting at is, Underneath everything that God delights in in this book is one thing, and it's very crystal clear of what God's one passion is in the whole, whole existence of creation, and it's this. God is passionate for his own glory. God is passionate for, underneath everything that he delights in and he's passionate for is this, his own glory. Or to rephrase, God is pleased... When his glory is praised. God finds pleasure when his glory is praised. Or to rephrase, God delights in the praise of his glory. God delights in the praise of his glory. I want you to know who God is. That's that's the point. And at the very center of God being God, of everything God is, God doing things to his glory. To his glory. So here's what we're going to do. First, I'm going to show you in Scripture that God is passionate for his glory. That God finds pleasure in his glory. He's pleased by it. Because what I say, Zach Cunningham, chief center of the earth, tells you about God of the universe and his pleasures means nothing. But if God says it, you can take it. Um, And then, after I show you in Scripture, and I'm going to hammer that point so hard that God is passionate for his own glory, after we do that, we're going to talk about what in the world is God's glory and why is he so passionate for it. Um, So take your Bibles. If what I'm saying is true, everything in this Bible and everything that happens in your life is going to have one aim, and that's to glorify God. It's going to have one aim. And when you see this book, or when you read this book, you should be able to see the glory of God at the center of all things. You should be able to see it. And today we're going to, we're going to see it. And at the risk of focusing in on one bush and missing the whole forest, we're just going to look at the whole forest. 
today. Uh, And so we're going to fly through this. Open your Bibles to Colossians. Open your Bibles to Colossians. It's in the New Testament. Colossians 1. We're talking about, in the Bible, God's going to do everything uh, for his glory. Because that is what he's most passionate for. Colossians 1, uh, verse 16. It says this, For by him all things were created. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. God created all things uh, for him, right? All things were created for God. Uh, in, in, In the very beginning, in Genesis, God starts creating stuff. And immediately, it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't give you a reason why he starts creating stuff, but he does. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that God, on this day, he created this, and it was good, this, and it was good, man, and it was really good. But in Genesis, you don't really get an immediate answer to the question, why is God creating stuff in the first place, right? But in Colossians 1, it tells you God created all things for him. And you don't have to turn there, but in Psalms 19.1, it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. So not only did God create all things for God, but God created all things for God's glory. Okay, you see it? God created all things for God's glory. Um, and, and so the reality is the heavens and the earth, the sky, the people, the plants, the atoms, the electrons, the neutrons, the Grand Canyon, the Himalayas, the oceans, the planets, the galaxies, and those little dust particles in the, in the air when the sun shines through were all created for God's glory, to declare the glory of God. And so not only did God create all those things, but in Isaiah 43, you can turn to Isaiah 43 and verse 7. Remember, we're looking for the motive of why God does everything, because I want you to know God, and if you know him, you can want him. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 7. Isaiah 43, 7, it says this. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, Whom I created for my glory. So not only did God create the heavens and the earth and the Grand Canyon and the Himalayas for his glory, but God created people for his glory. In Genesis, he created them as an image bearer of Christ, as someone who is going to hold the image of God and display his glory, right? So he created all things and people to the glory of God. But God's not done doing things for his glory. Look at a couple of verses later, Isaiah 43, 25. Look at verse 25. It says this. He created people for his glory, and then he's going to say this. I am he, God speaking, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my namesake, and I will, re- not, I will not remember your sins. So not only did God create people for his glory, but God forgives sinners for his glory. It says, I will, I will forgive, I will blot out their transgressions, and I will not remember their sins for my namesake. For my namesake. And so this one's trippy. You've got to think about this one. God does everything for his glory, including saving sinners who hate his glory. Do you see it? 
Sinners are somebody, in Romans 1, it says that sinners exchange the glory of God for an image. They don't like God's glory. They want their own glory. So God, somehow, he's going to do this. To the glory of his name, he's going to save sinners who hate the glory of his name. Do you, do you see it? Do you see that juxtaposition? God loves his glory, but saves sinners who hate his glory. And so how does that make sense? How is God going to glorify his name through sinners who hate his glory? How is he going to forgive them to the glory of his name? Turn to John 12. John 12. We're flying through these verses. John 12 is going to talk about how can God, who loves his glory and does everything for God, save sinners who hate God? Who hate his glory. How can he do it? How did, God, how, did, how did God forgive them? What does the Bible teach? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to his glory. Look at John 12 and verse 27. In verse 27 it says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. And then this crazy thing happens. A voice comes from heaven. It says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus came to the cross. He lived a perfect life, and he died to the glory of God's name. And he, wrote, he resurrected to the glory of his name to save sinners who hate the glory of his name to the glory of his name. You guys see that? He's doing everything to the glory of his name, even saving sinners who hate his glory. Um, and if, if the point's not hammered in yet, because I know I'm rambling about the glory of his name, I'm going to take it to one of the most famous Bible verses in all the Bible. Turn to Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. For his namesake. God does a lot of stuff. Listen, God does a lot of stuff in Psalms 20, Psalm 23, 1 through 3. He's going to, uh, what, what does he do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness. And then he tells you why. It was for his namesake. God did everything for his namesake. Um, in Romans 9, 22. So not only, you guys don't have to turn there, but not only does God save sinners who hate his glory to the glory of his name, but look at Romans 9, 22 says. It says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This says that not only does God save sinners to the glory of his name, what if God, in order to make his wrath known, has endured with much patience, much patience, vessels of destruction, in order that his glory, the riches of his glory, might be made known. Listen, not only does God, this is profound, not only does God save sinners to the glory of his name, but God shows wrath to sinners to the glory of his name. You see how this is working in? God created the world. God sent his son. God saved sinners. Heaven and hell, creation and reconciliation are all for God's glory. It was his plan from the beginning. 
That's what this says. Romans 9 says this. And so if that's his plan, what's the end game? What's the goal? This whole for his namesake stuff, where's it going to take us? We don't have to turn there, but Habakkuk uh, 2.14. This is the plan for the whole world, and this is what it says. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God's end game when he created the earth When he created it, he knew that the whole earth at some point in time would be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the oceans are covered with water, a.k.a. everywhere. That's the end game, that God's glory would be known everywhere. You can tell God loves his glory. In another end game perspective, in Revelations 22 or 21, it says this, that the city, the new Jerusalem, the end end times, the, the, the new earth, that in the end, the city has no need of a sun anymore and no moon. And here's why. Because the glory of God's going to give it light. That's the end game. God created, he, re- he redeemed all of this stuff for his namesake. And then at the end, his glory is going to be everywhere. So much so that it's going to fill the earth with light. Think about what the sun does for us. It gives us light. It gives us warmth. It gives us pretty much the ability to live. And God says that in the end, in the end, there won't even be the sun anymore. Because of God's glory, it will replace the sun. All right. Through this entire book, one thing is crystal clear. And it is that God is passionate for, remember, that's what we're getting at. What is God's passions? God is passionate for, underneath all his other passions, his own glory. He does all things to the glory of his name. And I hope you see that in scripture. I hope that when you read this book, uh, that this, the, the purpose of this whole book and life and existence is to bring glory to God. It's to bring glory to God, and it's all over the place. So the answer to what pleases God is that his name would be glorified. To know someone is to know their passions. And God has a passion for God. You want to know God? God is passionate for God. And so, and he's passionate for his glory. So we're going to move on. What is the glory of God? And why is God so dang passionate about it? What is the glory of God? When you look up the word glory in a dictionary, you get words back that say like majestic or magnificent or splendor or beauty. And those are really good words to try to define the word glory. But one pastor who I love um, says that, the, that glory is, is better defined by pointing at it than pointing at words, by, by showing it to you, by giving you examples. For instance, I don't know how many of you have been on top of the Highland Street parking garage, and it was sunset, and you look over campus, and you see the sun setting, and it's beautiful. And you can, when, you, when you see that, you see a little bit of glory, you can see it in there. Or if the, if the, jazz, if the UNT jazz band uh, executes their song perfectly, yeah, it claws up. Um, if you guys execute your song perfectly and it's so, it leaves you in awe, there is glory there. You, you can feel it. Or if a, a TWU gymnast perfectly executes a balance beam routine, you guys, are, you can see it. You, can, you have awe at it. You're like, that was glorious, right? Or... Uh, uh, or uh, when Michael Jordan hit that one shot and he ran over there and did like that jumping thing. Guys, fellas, ladies, 
There was glory. You, you, that was glorious, right? Or Sunday night. How many of you guys just love lightning, right? You, you go out, yeah. You go out there and you see this lightning. Why? Because it's, you can see the glory there, right? And even though that lightning is so often accompanied with tornadoes and hail and, and threat of life, um, <laughs> lightning, listen, the lightning is still glorious. Tonight we were supposed to have the waffle wagon here. And on Sunday night, their food truck I got struck by lightning. I'm not kidding. Josh texted me yesterday. He's the owner of the food truck. And he says, Zach, uh, we're not going to be able to make it. The truck was struck by lightning. And all the electric systems were fried. And so I say all that and say lightning is dangerous but glorious. Um, <laughs> the point is, and, and the point is, there is gl- you, you can see glory. You, if I point to it, you know what it is. But the glory of God is something not, it's totally different. All of those things are almost meaningless when trying to define the glory of God because the glory of God is so much greater. That's what we're getting at. It's so much bigger than all of those things. Um, and so uh, to, to try to, it's like trying to piece together his infinite and overflowing goodness with his grace and his perfect, uh, his perfect mercy and love. It's like trying to, it's the culmination of all those things. It's, it's his uh, beautiful perfections. It's, it's trying to put together all of those things. God's glory, what he loves, remember this is his passion, God's glory is the fullness of God. It, it's, it's his fullness. Uh, that's my best bet at trying to explain that. Um, so when you see in scripture that God's doing everything for his glory, and you see it in scripture because I took 10 minutes explaining it to you, you see it what that means is that God is displaying his glory throughout the entire creation and everything that he does. He's displaying that fullness. He's not, God's, when, when God created the world, he wasn't creating glory. He wasn't giving more glory to himself, right? It's not like he didn't have any glory, so he created, and now he's glorious. What he's doing is he's displaying it. God's going to display it through everything that he creates uh, and not to create or further his glory, but to display it. So this is what we've got so far. God is doing all things to the glory of his name, and God's glory is uh, his beautiful perfections. And so that's what we've got so far. So why? Why does God do all these things to his glory? Why is he trying to show off his glory in all of these things? Uh, I touched on this a while back, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of the night. Um, and it's the main point, the answer to that question, and the answer to the purpose of life and all things. God delights in the praise of his glory. That's why he's doing it. God wants to be praised. We serve a God who wants to be praised. We serve a God who, who wants to be viewed as the most valuable thing in the world. That's what God wants. He wants to be known. He wants his glory to be known. And he wants his people to see him as perfect in in such a sense that once they see him as perfect, outpouring praise. That's what God wants. See me as perfect and then praise me. Flip to Psalms 146. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible, just to the left. But 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150 are the last five Psalms. And I just want you to look at them. You don't, have, you don't have to read them. You can glance over these five psalms. 
I want you to look at what in the world do these psalms start with and what is the theme. And you look. Look at these last five psalms. David's whole life of, of getting to know God. And the last five psalms says, praise the Lord. It says, praise the Lord. Each one starts with praise the Lord. And then some of them say, praise the Lord, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise the Lord. That's what Psalm says. That's what God wants. We serve a God who wants to be praised. Praise the Lord. Now, to a lot of you, I want to take a minute and stop. Because to a lot of you, everything I've said in the past 30 minutes has been stuff that you knew. Yes, God created the world to his glory. Yes, God wants to be praised. Yes, God does everything uh, for God. You know that. But what I want to do is, I want to pry that open a little bit. Pry the fact that God is for God. I want to pry it open so much so that when you realize what that even means, your soul's going to thirst for that God. And so pay attention, because the reason I brought this to the table tonight is because there seems to be a problem. There seems to be a problem here, and it's one that I wrestled with for a long time. And here it is. Tonight we saw that God loves himself. God created everything for himself. God does everything for himself. And God wants to be praised. It sounds like God is selfish. It seems as though God is demanding. It appears as though God is doing everything just for himself. Do you see the problem here? You see it. The objection is, this sounds like God has a big ego. Uh, In April 1966, Time Magazine came out with an article and a cover, and it said, Is God Dead? April 1966, Time Magazine, Is God Dead? And this article pulled a lot from a book titled God is Dead by this dude named Frederick Nietzsche. He's a German guy. Anyways, the quote from this dude is, and it reads this, I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. That was his thing. I can't believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. He had that problem. He could not wrap his head around the fact that God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, wants to be praised all the time, because he does. God wants to be praised all the time, and this was a problem for him, and this might even be a problem for some of you guys as the gears are turning, and it's a problem for a lot of people outside these walls. Why or how can God, who is loving and self-sufficient, want to be praised all the time. Why can't God just be happy without praise if he is God? Why does God sound like he has some sort of insecurity or he needs some sort of affirmation to be, to be praised? If he is God, can't he just be God without demanding praise? And that is what I'm tackling tonight. That is the question I want to address. That's why I prepared this sermon for you guys because I want you to want God and I want you to know God And that God wants to be praised. And so, uh, here's why this is a problem, and it might, I'm going to try to answer it. Um, I don't know how I'm going to say this. Everybody who is created, everybody in this room, including myself, hear me say that, is a narcissistic egotist. By nature, 
By nature, you are a narcissistic egotist. By nature. Don't shoot the messenger. This is what the Bible teaches. You love yourself, and you're self-centered. Okay? That's what the Bible teaches. We're all sinners, and we're all narcissistic egotists. However, clarifier, if God has gripped your heart, and you are saved... You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live, it's for Jesus. So even though, by nature, you are a self-loving, self-centered person, you know that's wrong. You know that you're supposed to be a God-centered, God-loving person. However, I submit to you that there will still be evidence of your self-loving, self-centered self as long as you're on this side of glory. Okay, this is this kind of stuff that Paul wrestles with in Romans 7. This uh, sin, uh, prone to wander stuff. Like you're prone to it, right? And so even though you know you're not supposed to be a narcissistic egotist, a self-loving, self-centered person, uh, you know it's wrong. Um, And so, and here's why I say all this. We know it's wrong because we don't like it when people show off, right? You don't like it when people boast, right? We don't like it when people talk about ourselves. about themselves. Uh, We think it's dumb when a professor makes us buy the book that they wrote, right? You don't like that. It's wrong. You don't like it when your friends post pictures on Instagram of themselves every single day or have Snapchat stories where the camera's always facing them 200 seconds of the day. You don't like it. We We don't like that, right? You know it's wrong. But the point is, um, we don't admire people who want praise. We don't admire people who want praise of themselves. We do admire people who are so composed and so secure that they don't need praise, nor do they want praise. Those are the type of people we like, who aren't about themselves, right? That dude is humble, right? And so that's what we like. That's what we admire. And so, so the point, what we're getting at is, now you can see the problem, Our God loves praise, and we don't admire people who love praise. You see it. We don't like people who love themselves. Our God loves himself. There's a problem there. We don't like people who are living for themselves. That's wrong, but our God lives for himself. You guys can see the conundrum here, but if you focus... And this is what the whole sermon's about. If you get this, if you can grasp this, this is, this is what's going to make your soul satisfied. Why does God live for himself? We've thrown a lot of stuff, a lot of ingredients in, and it boils down to this. Why does God live for himself? Because God is the only one worth living for. God lives for himself because God is the only one worth living for, and God is the only one worth praising God can live for himself because he's the only one worth living for, and he's the only one worth doing anything for. Can you see how that makes sense? So let me show you that this is true. Um, You were created, I was created, you were all designed to worship something. You're all designed to praise something. Um, your soul, your very soul is created to give praise to whatever you could find. And C.S. Lewis picked up on this. He's an author, and he, and he wrote about it. Um, you see, if you look around, we love to worship stuff. You've got husbands, 
praising their wives and wives praising their husbands, right? You've got readers praising their favorite author. That's the best author. You've got athletes praising their favorite sport, right? That, that's the best sport. You've got, uh, there's praise of the weather and of nature and animals and colleges and countries and politicians. Uh, there's praise of children and flowers and mountains and rare stamps and rare beetles. There's praise of scholars and actors and celebrities and athletes. And especially around here, there's praise of Whataburger and, and cane sauce and Star Wars. There's praise everywhere. And the fact, what I'm trying to get at, we, we praise stuff, but we praise what we find value in. You see, okay, we're going to, cane sauce has value. I'm going to praise it, right? You see that. Whatever we find value in, we're going to praise it. And so <laughs> you find value in coffee, you're going to praise it. You find value in your major, you're going to praise your major. You find value in money, you're going to praise money. You find value in yourself, and you're going to praise yourself. The point is, our souls are created to praise. Our souls are created to praise what is valuable, what we find valuable. And that praise, praising that valuable stuff, it brings us joy. It makes us happy to praise what is valuable. Okay, and, and, and what we're trying to get at is that thing, the value of that thing you're going to praise, however much value that has, that's the amount of joy you're going to have. Hear that. You're going to praise what you value, and if that value is super high, you're going to get a lot of joy out of praising that thing. And so here's what this means. You find value in all those things, and you live for those things, coffee, money, sports, celebrities. You find value in it, you live for it, and you praise it. Um, but the value of all those things, the value of everything uh, is, is nothing. It is meaningless. It is garbage and it is rubbish compared to the value of God. All of that stuff that you can live for, that you can praise, the value of it is nothing compared to the knowledge of the value of God. And so to live for God, if you're going to live for God, is to esteem God as more valuable than anything. You're going to live for something. And to live for God is to say, God is what I'm going to live for because it's, God has more value than anything. And so to live, live for God is to esteem God as supremely valuable. So how can God live for God? Because God is the only thing worth living for. And listen, that is some really good news. That is some really, really good news. The fact that God's going to live for God is some great news. And here's why. When God does everything for God, he makes available the one thing that is supremely valuable. Let me rephrase that. When God displays himself, when he makes himself seem as though and appear as supremely valuable. So God's going to live for himself because God's supremely valuable. He displays it. I am supremely valuable. And when God does that, when God makes it known that he is supremely valuable, he saves us from a whole life of looking and finding pitiful joy in something that isn't valuable and saying, I am valuable. God lives for God, and he says, God is the most valuable thing, so I'm going to live for it, and so should you. That's what God's doing by living for God, by being for God, and that makes our souls very happy. 
To live for the, the one thing that is supremely valuable and the only thing worth living for makes your soul very, very happy. Because finding the most valuable thing in the world is what this whole life is about. Your whole life, you're trying to find the most valuable thing. And when you find it, what you think is the most valuable thing, you're going to worship and praise it and live for it. That's your whole life is looking for value. God is the supreme value. And when you find that and you live for that, you get the most joy. The most joy in valuing God. I'm telling you, the only thing that can make your soul truly happy is to praise the one who is supremely valuable, and that is God. That is God. God lives for God. And and this might answer some other questions, like that Frederick guy. If God were to, listen to this, if God were to live for anything other than God, God God right now lives for God, okay? He lives for it. It's supremely valuable. And if God were to live for something other than God, he's saying that that something is worth more than himself, and that's idolatry. God cannot be for anybody else except for God. And in Exodus, when God says, have no other God before me, he meant it. And he meant it for himself. He, he values himself. He is the most supreme, utterly valuable thing. And so in light of that, the follow-up question is, do you want God? Do you want him? Do you have a passion for that God? It's one thing to know God as supremely valuable, and it's another thing to live as though he were supremely valuable. It's one thing to know that he's the one that you should live for, and it's another thing to live for him, right? It's one thing to know God is passionate about his glory. You know that God loves his glory, and it's another thing to know that and then to leverage your life to get on board with that. For his passion, because that's what God's passionate for. And guys, listen, this has some serious implications. If you're a Christian in here, listen, if you're a Christian, you're saying that you're not going to live for yourself anymore, and you're going to live for God. And to live for God is to live for God's passions. And God's passion is his glory. You see it, the implication? If you're a Christian, you're going to live for God. Live live for God is his passion. Passion is his glory. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says, so whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. That's why he says it, because that's what you should do. That's why we exist. This is why we live. That's the meaning of life. It's to glorify God. The question, uh, is what I'm about to do going to glorify God? The question is what I'm about to do, going to bring glory to God, can be asked at any moment in your entire life. Are you going to glorify God? You see, it's one thing to know that Jordan loves mustard and jalapenos on her popcorn. It's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to go buy a gallon of mustard and a whole bush of jalapenos, go to Cinemark and buy the refillable popcorn and give it to her. You see it. It's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to do it. It's one thing to know that God's passionate for his glory, and it's another thing to do it. Your entire life and every moment you live should be motivated by giving glory to God. It's one thing to know God, and it's another thing to live for God and to want God. 
And if you truly know God, listen, if you know who God is, the God of the Bible, you will want him. Because the God of the Bible is the most valuable thing in the world. And if you know that, you should want that. You should want it. You will know that he is supremely valuable over all things. And if you know that, let me tell you, there is no greater thirst for knowing more and more about God. And there is no greater satisfaction than knowing and, 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 and tasting God. There is no greater satisfaction in the soul than to praise and worship God. There's, there's nothing greater in the whole world than to worship the God who is supremely valuable. So let me pray, and then that's what we're going to do. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.